everyone. Welcome to Queer Lodgings, the queer-led podcast about everything Tolkien. I'm Alicia. I'm an independent Tolkien scholar and the member of some leadership of a Tolkien-related society. And I am here with Grace and Leah. I'm great. I am a fan and occasional Tolkien scholar, definite Tolkien nerd, and also serve on some leadership councils for uh, Tolkien scholarship organizations and some activism boards as well. And I'm Leah, and I'm just another Tolkien nerd who hangs around here and, I don't know, makes everybody else here look really smart. So, (laughs) (laughs) And let's not forget our Tolkien white guy, Tim. Yes. Hi, everybody. I'm Tim. I am the non-queer person on the podcast, and I will just be kind of here periodically as sort of the on-air producer kind of guy. I have did a, another podcast previously for about five years called Dance for Black Dance. Uh, recently sort of went to punk, but uh, I am married to Alicia, and we are a house of Tolkien nerds. Yeah, so we decided to start this podcast because we saw, let me put on my marketing hat briefly, a bit of a need in the market for a Tolkien podcast that is one centered on queerness and two just not centered on white dudes talking about white dude stuff. <laughs> yeah. Straight white dudes in particular. Yeah. We <laughs> we saw we definitely <laughs> saw a niche for for some queer women and queer non men to come in here and approach token from a deliberately intersectional anti-racist uh, stance and one that was uh not afraid to really question Tolkien and question question fandom in response to Tolkien. But I know all of us have had some pretty interesting experiences on social media lately. I know Grace has been doing kind of a deep dive on various groups lately. Well, and that's one of the things about why we're releasing this episode now, this little sort of episode half, half episode harfoot episode if you will <laughs> that there's been some timeliness in the discussion relating to i think the the need to approach tolkien and tolkien scholarship and, and fandom with this particular lens folks on the internet have been really great at providing that case study of late shall we say <laughs> that's a very generous way to put it indeed that is a fantastic segue. <laughs> what a segue. Indeed. So uh, in today's not quite really a real episode, bonus episode, proto episode, however you want to say it, we're discussing the backlash surrounding Amazon's Rings of Power. Backlash? There hasn't been any backlash. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's been 100% fine. Not that, yeah. that white supremacist backlash that doesn't exist. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, as of right now, none of us have watched watched the episodes. I know a few people who have watched the episodes. They went to the New York premiere. I did not get in on that, sadly. Um, but so we are attacking this from a we have not seen any of this yet. This is just kind of what we've been dealing with for the past, what, year? Two years. <laughs> or so. or, Two yeah, years. more than that. Um, just to give everyone a little bit of background about where I stand on this personally, I 
am my hands are tied in terms of fighting with people on the internet about this because I actually administer, I moderate one of the one of the big Tolkien Facebook groups. Big a Tolkien Facebook group that has a, a few hundred people who are a part of it. So I am not allowed to really speak my mind fully about their bullshit arguments. Uh, <laughs> He's not in that group. No, not in that group. And I don't actually go on to any other group because my husband is constantly in a lot of other Tolkien groups and reports back to me about the horseshit that he's dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Not just groups, also official Facebook pages. That's what I don't understand is the people that are like still following the Facebook pages for like Rings of Power, One Ring.net, and like anytime anything that's dropped about it. Are just ready, like pants down, ready to take shit all over it, like a wet, <laughs> fucking nasty steaming pile all over like, it. Even though they have fucking seat. How do these people live their lives? Like, how? <laughs> what? What are you doing with your lives that you're ready to do this? Why is this what you choose to fucking spend your time on? That's what I don't understand. There's so what many a fucking hobby. Go, go and Ugh. go read the books if you're pissed off that an adaptation is coming out. Touch grass. <laughs> read the books man but yeah that's we're kind of jumping the gun a little bit but (laughs) are are we (laughs) but we really wanted to have this photo episode to kind of kind of vent our spleens a little bit before the show starts because as alicia said none of us have seen the show the vast majority of people on the planet have not seen the show and yet there are a lot of opinions being shared about the show that are pretty shitty and specifically a lot of these complaints are deeply racist bigoted on several levels and extremely antithetical to a lot of what our values and what a lot of rings of power i think is setting out to do and so we really wanted to talk about it amongst ourselves and also bring some clapbacks to these complaints. I, I just want to head this off at the past before the accusations come. None of us are paid by Amazon. There are oh, no quote-unquote paid shows. I mean, look, if Amazon wants to pay me, I'll fucking take their dirty money. But yeah. I, I have not been given any. <laughs> I don't like Amazon and I spend too much money there any of the, anyway. So if they wanted to pay me, like that might balance it a bit, but whew, not happening yet. <laughs> yeah. No, none of us are, are big fucking fans of Skeletor Bezos or anything like yeah. that. Like we're just a bunch of Tolkien fans slash scholars that are optimistic about a new adaptation that is focused on a world that we are all passionate about. In fact, one of my frustrations is that some of the opinions that people are presenting as fact on the internet are making me have to defend Amazon and that's just rude. Yeah. Not a great position to put any of us in. No. And it's just it's such a cheap like fallback is like, oh they're just, you know, you're just been paid by Amazon. You're just a shill for the show. Blah blah blah. Or, or like, you know, oh you just love, you know, capitalist Bezos. Like, no, I don't. But that's who's making the fucking show. Who else is gonna make it? It's got to be someone with fucking money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We didn't choose who bought the rights and yep. we didn't we didn't vote for them. I mean, to buy the rights and we don't have any say in how that goes. But now that it has been made, 
we do have a lot of things to say about what what we feel about how other people feel about it. <laughs> and yeah, none of us are being paid. And honestly, if they were going to pay me, I would consider it a kind of a form of reparations. But um <laughs> for for all the grief that they've caused me here personally in Amazon headquarters, Seattle. But yeah. I guess in terms of uh turning to some of these complaints. Shall we shall we kind of launch into that and kind of see kind of yeah tell folks what's been going on? One of the things that people will say all the time in a lot of these um just just ever so lovely social media comments and YouTube videos and what have you is that their complaints have absolutely nothing to do with topics of race or misogyny or whatever and, and all that and then proceed to go on to some uh, some statements that would seem to contradict that. So maybe maybe it may just make sense to take a minute here and just state the case of what we've been seeing. Is this where angry nerd, actually nerd, comes in? Yes, I would like to invite <laughs> Tim, the token white guy, to uh, read some of these complaints <sighs> in fantastic angry nerd comic book guy voice for us. So I guess the first one is just like they're just testing colorful people for the point of you know to like force diversity. Like, what's the point? We're no fucking like black houses anymore. It's fucking so hard. Thank you so much. Oh, I love that. My, my first response to that is usually it's someone complaining about specifically. Well, Middle Earth is based in medieval Europe. There weren't black people there. There fucking were. There were black people in medieval Europe. Just get over it, guys. <laughs> yeah. They were there. And to to say otherwise is to ignore vast swaths of history. And to honestly, I think at the end of the day, what it does, a lot of this, like, you know, insisting that, you know, Tolkien based his, you know, mythology on, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Germanic myths, and they were all white, and bleh, and then, like, no, he didn't. And also, it's not really true that they were all white, and you're doing the work of Nazis when you say that. So, yeah. And Tolkien would be angry that. at you, because who didn't like Nazis? <laughs> Fucking Tolkien. Yeah. Even if you were to say, okay, sure, everything is based on North and Celtic. Which is probably an over, which is definitely an overgeneralization. Influence doesn't mean has to 100% obey the tenets of, right? You can have some of that influence, and then in other places, you can entirely fucking subvert that influence. It's not a all or nothing proposition. Yeah, I, I guess I should say, like, it's not, it, I think it's like influenced by uh, Germanic and Celtic um, mythologies and other mythologies of you know northwestern europe absolutely but based on no that's not this is a work of fiction this isn't you know this isn't a work of a culture of an ethnic culture you know telling each other stories and distilling it down over centuries right like this is one guy this is one guy who said this and who made this fictional story which isn't mythology and a lot of people have been getting kind of confused about that also like relatedly have been getting confused about calling Tolkien a saint 
which I think that he would be really uncomfortable by. I have to do an episode on the canonization bullshit oh, at some point. Yeah. It's stop making stop making this into a religion, right? Just stop making him into a religion, especially. <laughs> he would be really pissed off about that, given how upset he was when C.S. Lewis decided to start writing all of his apologetic books, because Tolkien didn't think that laymen should act as if they are in any sort of like religious authority over other people. Exactly. It's it's gross. It's weird. Like he's just a man. He was a very brilliant man who created like an incredibly like a world that you just want to like curl up and and fly in, right? Like it's an incredible feat what he achieved. He wrote this over the course of what's 60 years, 70 years. Like of course it's it's like this really huge it's hard to wrap your head around how detailed and like just the scope of it is. But that doesn't mean that he was superhuman or that he should be canonized or what. It's just it's so strange to me. Yeah, it's he's he's a human and all of the good and the bad that comes with being a human and all the foibles and flaws. He was actually he was a very complicated person and a lot of what these people have been doing in trying to appeal back to Tolkien in their complaints or their 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 anger about this is, you know, saying Tolkien would, Tolkien, Tolkien did, Tolkien this, is appealing back to him is to, again, flatten him into a caricature of who he actually was and the man that he actually was. And it, it turns him into a reflection of you know, that person's own personal beliefs, which may or may not be grounded in anything. I don't know what the word might be to be generous to them. <laughs> but <laughs> Reality? <laughs> Reality? Yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> yeah, it's not grounded in reality. And it's often grounded in like, you know, kind of a, a revisionist sort of bigoted position about, you know, who he was, what he thought, and a lot of it is more reflective of the person's own bigotry and their own sense of sense of the world. You saying that they might be projecting a little bit? I <laughs> don't believe just a smidge. Just well, so much bit. of what folks are saying in these just just you know awful videos and comments on the internet and everything is is revisionist. It's reductive. And it's not reflective of Fulton's texts or letters or the documentation that we have. There are a lot of opinions being stated as facts that are directly contradicted in all of the written records that we have. So, uh, and there's certainly times where Tolkien contradicts himself, and we will we will certainly not shy away from the times that that happens. But we it's we will constantly. go. He, he constantly contradicts himself about literally everything. You can build a case on basically any side of any opinion based on Tolkien's own words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he changed his mind constantly and up to the end of his life. I feel like when people ignore that, they, they do a really great disservice to him. And they try to tout themselves as like, they're the great defender of Tolkien or sort of like the true fan, the true, you know, the, the pure Tolkien fan. And I'm like, you're, this, this is the most 
like disrespectful thing I feel like you can do to the man by, you know, insisting that you know what he thought at any given time when, you know, he's dead and you didn't know him and constantly changed his mind about everything. So although there were some things that he was pretty pretty clear on as a through line throughout his life. One of those would be, as mentioned, he was not a fan of Nazis or ideologies of white supremacy. And there are in fact quite a number of points in his letters, without even having to explicate his texts or anything like that, just in his letters that he he just absolutely eschewed those ideologies, uh, which are of course the ideologies that a lot of these statements about Tolkien are grounded in today. And that's quite troubling to me. Yeah. But the the idea that everything is based in, you know, Nordic myths or whatever, there is in letter 375, he said, not Nordic, please. A word I personally dislike. It is associated through the French origin with racialist theories. He was very keen on Oof. pointing out when when this was not okay with him. Yeah, we we have had some like joking discussions about whether it's because it was racialist or because it was French. Uh, <laughs> Tolkien famously hated words that come from French. And like when he was writing The Lord of the Rings and he needed a synonym, he would go and make sure that it had Germanic origins and not French origins because he was, you know, in the 1900s still pissed off about the Norman invasion. <laughs> Oh, Lord. (laughs) This is part of where folks, I think, get the idea that 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 makes sense because he was trying to create this Anglo-Saxon myth of Middle Earth in order to be a myth for England and all of that. But Alicia, do you want to tap in on that's not maybe perhaps quite true? Yeah. So, like, obviously, Tolkien was a scholar of Anglo-Saxon and therefore everything that he does is going to kind of be touched like that. Because if you are like really enmeshed in a field in that way, it's going to kind of bleed over into everything else. But I'm just going to go ahead and just say, if you haven't read Dimitri Femi's Tolkien Race and Cultural History, you should. He goes into this in a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. It, it's positioning Tolkien as the as a man in his time and how he is dealing with the leftovers of basically eugenics and how that is during his lifetime being proven as being unscientific and how he's dealing with that from the time he's 19 until he dies essentially and how the intersection of what's happening scientifically and therefore what Tolkien believes scientifically and and his individual study in Anglo-Saxon, like how those two things intersect. Because when he's reading medievalist works, those are actually based on medievalist prejudices. And those sorts of things work their way into Tolkien's work. Even though Tolkien, you know, the man seems to have really eschewed racialist stuff. Like in Letters 37, he says... I should regret giving any color to the notion that I subscribe to the wholly pernicious and unscientific race doctrine. Like he's coming out really hard against that. But like what he's doing in his, at least what he's doing in the original, in the first iteration of Middle Earth, which is the Book of Lost Tales, which is stuff that most people don't even read. Because who actually reads the history of Middle Earth? Just like the real big dorks. 
but like what he's trying to do aka us yeah exactly (laughs) when you hear people talk about the mythology for england which we're going to get into in a second what they're talking about is specifically the book of lost tales his really early writings and what he is trying to do there is actually in his very early life a lot of countries in europe were refinding their folk tales and what he realized was that england doesn't have its own folk mythology so he figured much like finland did with the kalevala that he wanted to do something similar to that but he's coming at it from like a philological which is the scientific study of language and literature and how they work together he's coming at it from that angle and then he realized that there's just not enough to really build actual folklore out of so he started creating his own i've really gone off on a tangent (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I was going to say that, you know, the idea that England as a separate entity that didn't have a folklore, quote unquote, is kind of is incorrect in the same way that the whole idea of the reconstructing different ethnicities and and reconstructing um, the history of different cultures that sort of existed. That was all part of the same medievalist project, right? Like that, the nation building and the rediscovering of folklore, it was all done with very specific aims in mind, grounded in nationalism and very often grounded in in racism and in different uh, supremacies, specifically white supremacy for a lot of the um, Northwestern European countries. Because during the Enlightenment and during the Romantic periods, you know, these new studies of like these new areas of science and these new areas of um, investigation of history and, you know, archaeology, all of these things were used and able to be used to support very specific narratives. And often they were, you know, completely ungrounded in anything that, you know, (laughs) in anything that like actually resembles the way, you know, way that history unfolded and uh, it looks very very different to the like the study these different studies today but they also kind of have that that same that same ground of being that has been really difficult to come away from and i guess the point being that that england as you know a separate sort of nation that's not what it is so it's never it's never been what it is it's made up of a whole bunch of different people so it's made up of a whole bunch of different invasions and immigrations and a whole lot of different peoples from the continent who came over in different waves and so the folklore that emerges the mythology that emerges from it has all those same influences and so kind of feel like you know there really is no like pure like england and there really is no pure anglo-saxon despite what a lot of people have tried to construct because the truth is there was really no one people it was all these different peoples coming together and to to live and occupy this this little island the truth is that tolkien is influenced by the history of the place where he lives and that this nation that he loves and all that but the idea that he he was writing a mythology for england that is not a phrase that tolkien himself used that's a phrase that we're all familiar with because it was introduced by his biographer, Humphrey Carpenter. And so the idea that, that that's what 
Tolkien was doing is an assertion by another individual. It's not something out of Tolkien's own language. Yeah, it, it's a poor paraphrase of a letter that he sent to his publisher, and it but it is a very poor paraphrase. I do want to get back to this um, England as its own group of people thing, because what it, it sounds really similar to what is currently happening in America, where people identify as white and don't understand why that is problematic. It's because white people aren't like really that that's not your ethnicity, it's not your nationality. And the reason why I mean like in general it's okay in quotation marks to claim to be black, but it's not okay to be white is because white people enslaved black people and took that ethnicity and nationality away from them. A lot of black people in North America have no idea where they actually came from other than just generic Africa. Whereas a lot of white people can pinpoint where they're, you know, five times great grandparents came from. And it's, you know, England, it's France, it's Norway, whatever. What is happening around the time that Tolkien's actually trying to write his quote unquote mythology for England is that the Celts are starting to rise up and push against England. Like Ireland's making a case for why they should be free. Scotland is making a case for why they should be free. Tolkien, who, although his works are decorated with Celtic things, apparently dislikes Celtic people. And he said in one of his letters that Celtic influence was an affront to his essential Anglo Saxonness, which is yeah. a hell of a quote. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's trying to make a group. Yeah. It really highlights, though, how his definition of race and culture is based in culture and language yeah. rather than physical characteristics like skin color. Right. And in speaking to the point about claiming to the, the white culture, it's like, no, white whiteness isn't the culture. It's an absence of culture. And I'm I'm sorry. I thought white culture was having birthday parties for your dogs and doing uh, gender, gender reveals, reveals that catch yep. California like on catch, fire. Like catch the, yeah, like catch the country on fire. That is white <laughs> culture. You're absolutely right. Um, oh my god. For the record, since some of you can't see us, everybody on this podcast is white. Is white as fuck. Yeah. So yeah. Look, and sometimes we're complicit. We we probably have all had birthday parties for our dogs or cats. Oh, one hundred percent. <laughs> yeah yeah i make him a meat cake it's a whole thing <laughs> yeah oh my god but like in order to become white our ancestors gave up their cultures right in order to gain these privileges and this power of of whiteness it we had to erase where we actually came from and cut ourselves off from you know that history and our, our cultures of the various, you know, where ancestors all came from. The actual rich storied histories to make this like basically yeah. artificial culture. Exactly. And fucking inch deep. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I feel like I, I sometimes wonder if some of that kind of grief in a way is something that Tolkien was sort of reaching for when he talked about creating a mythology for, for England and kind of trying to to reconnect with with something that didn't mean the British Empire, that it didn't mean colonization, it didn't mean 
the eradication of so many other other cultures it kind of meant like what was it that the various peoples here on this island in this you know in this space in this space where i live what you know what were their stories and you know what were their beliefs and i guess we want to as i say i don't know if we want to keep going on with um some of this like the, the mythology behind uh um, a white you know medieval europe I don't know. I get really frustrated with it when I see this complaint happening online and in, I've seen it, I've seen it pop up in a few times in uh, Facebook. And because it's, because again, it's like the long argument, like in response to that particular complaint is like grounded in like needing to know the history of racisms, the history, the actual medieval histories, the history of what we've been talking about with like, you know, nation building and the romantic and enlightenment uh, movements of science and eugenics and, you know, the grounding and racisms of, of that. And there's a short argument against that complaint, which is Nazis, my dude. My <laughs> Nazis are the- not you're saying Nazi shit, you know, and like you're doing again, you're doing the work of white supremacists and Nazis when you say things like the Middle Ages were white, and when you say things like medieval Europe was white. And I'm like, that's that's like that's like the TLDR without needing to know like all that complex history and that uh, nuance of what we mean when we mean when we say things like Anglo-Saxon and white and all this other stuff. It's like, no, Nazis have been saying this shit for decades. It's been a campaign of theirs for decades, even before there were Nazis, white supremacists for saying this shit. And so I'm like, when you say it on Facebook or on Twitter, you're doing their work for them. Mm -hmm. I would also like to point out that Nazis got their ideas from Reconstruction America. Like Bingo. the KKK directly gave Nazis their ideas on how to do the horrible things that Nazis did. So, like, don't even try to say that. Well, you know, I'm an American and I believe in freedom and blah in blah fact, whatever. <laughs> there are aspects of the American caste system that that actual meeting groups of Nazis determined that they could not simply implement in Germany because it would be too noticeably awful. <laughs> Jesus fuck. But just for the record, I'm from Georgia. I grew up really enmeshed in this horrible racist horseshit. And yeah. it's um mildly triggering for me. <laughs> Man, it's just like, yeah, like learning that shit, you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ. We we have been sold something in american schools about ourselves for sure lies those things are lies it's all lies <laughs> anyone by the way who wants to uh to investigate a little bit more of what i was saying about nazis actually holding back on some of the american traditions i would recommend cast the origins of our discontent by isabel wilkerson and if anybody wants to read more about the whole mythology for England and why it's kind of largely a misconception, uh, Luke Shelton, who is a co-host on the Tolkien Experience podcast and also a PhD Tolkien scholar himself, uh, did a whole great article on it uh, that is called 
called Why Calling Tolkien's Work a Mythology for England is Wrong and Misleading. And it goes over sort of the academic arguments for where it came from and why it's not really something that can be truly attributed to Tolkien, especially in his it also goes into detail about Demetri Femi's book and why you should read it, because it is one of the cornerstones of modern Tolkien scholarship. It is probably going to end up being like the unofficial Bible. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty yeah, much. Just read that book and then you'll know all of our arguments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We we started talking about inclusive casting and then like hard right straight into Tolkien wasn't a racist. Let me hard left, hard left, Alicia. Oh yeah, shit. Oh god. French <laughs> or Celtic. Yeah, yeah. Oh lord. Hey, Tolkien hated the French, but he was okay with people with different colored skin. Um, it doesn't really even fucking matter what Tolkien thought. Although, like. I'm always going to think it matters because I like Tolkien and I like his work and I don't want to be disappointed by him being a closeted racist, which he wasn't. This is 2022, and if they want to adapt a Tolkien work and put in black people, there's nothing stopping them. One, I don't think that it would make Tolkien particularly angry because Tolkien doesn't really seem to see race in the same way that like, a North American person living today would see race. Two, there is no textual evidence to say that there weren't black elves. That's been one of my favorite things to throw back <laughs> in the faces of trolls on Facebook and Twitter. Because I, I asked them to specifically cite me where Tolkien said that all elves and or all dwarves in Middle Earth were light skinned. Nobody's been able to yet because it doesn't fucking <laughs> exist. Right. And three, it's 2022, and like the racial. Like makeup of the group of people who are going to be watching this show is significantly different than it would have been even 20-30 years ago. So just fucking get over it. I love too the argument that I see a lot crop up on Facebook and, and other such lovely places that well, but Tolkien was writing this in the 1930s and 1930s Britain. It, it should reflect what 1930s Britain looked like. Well, guess what? There were a lot of different cultures represented in 1930s Britain, Mm -hmm. too. And so there's really no excuse for a reductive reading of who can and can't be in this fictional land of Middle Earth based on skin tone. I love that, too. I love that that's what's breaking the illusion for them, is the fact that some of the elves and dwarves have dark skin, not the fact that you know, they're having trouble being immersed in this world where fucking, like, wizards and goblins and fucking dragons yeah, yeah, wizards and dragons and light comes from trees. Yeah, because somebody's yeah. fucking skin pigmentation is too dark. That's what breaks the illusion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like fucking Balrogs and dragons and a gigantic flaming spiritual eye. Yeah. But black people is where you draw the line. Like some of them will start going off into these stupid fucking like genetic arguments and like, my dude. Elves <sighs> were created by fucking men. They woke up next to a fucking lake. They were sang into goddamn existence. Why? A fucking race of of, uh, shapeshifters, basically. By the Valar, who could assume any goddamn shape they wanted to. By Eru, who is, you know, 
supposed to be God, I guess, but is we, we could talk <laughs> about that later. <laughs> That's a whole other episode. Previews of future episodes. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then the tours made by Ale, right? And yep. Ale also Valar, also fucking shapeshifter. Yeah. There's no reason why he couldn't have magically made them in all the fucking colors of the rainbow kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to, while we're talking about Tolkien's actual depictions of things, just give you a couple of short descriptions of men that Tolkien gave. Um, Please do. Please. So in the Quintus Silmarillion, which was written in the mid to late 1930s, which is mostly what became the published Silmarillion, there's additional work that got worked into that but so there's uh there's the three houses of the adine which are the uh, men who align themselves with elves some of them became numenorians later there's the house of hador which were described as yellow-haired blue-eyed for the most part greater in strength and stature than the elves and what I, what treebeard would call hasty there's the house of Haleth which were like the House of Hador, but not as tall. They were broader and slower and had slow but deep thought. And they, they actually changed to be, to be physically closer to Beor's uh, people in the, in the 1950s iteration of the Silmarillion. In the House of Beor, which are darker brown hair, gray eyes, faces that are, quote, fair to look upon, shapely of form but hardy, equal in height to elves, and smart. And I want to go forward to the Lord of the Rings, where they talk about the Dunedain, which are the... Um... Wait, wait. The House of Feor at one point are also described as having skin color ranging from fair to smart. There you go. In of Dwarves and Men, which is in the middle of home, uh, with History of Middle-earth. Uh, this was written in the late 60s. They are, uh, the folks of Beor and Hador are shown as being related by their speech. And the House of Beor is described as, this is a direct quote from that, uh, contrast in speech was probably connected with the observable physical differences between the two peoples. Many were less fair in skin, some indeed being swarthy. Swarthy, I wanted to take a second and define that term, because there are a lot of people that will say, okay, he just meant Mediterranean, you know, olive skin, whatever you want to call it kind of thing. But like, Swarthy, yes, that is one historical application of that term. Swarthy is descended from the Anglo-Saxon word swirt, which means explicitly black. Tolkien being a fucking scholar of (laughs) Anglo-Saxon would have been very familiar with that usage of the term. Tolkien being also a, such an exact linguist and being so careful with his word choice, he wanted to prescribe a certain image in your head. He would do so, and he did many times. How many fucking times does he talk about ladies having light, beautiful arms and shit like that? Which right. we'll get, I'm sure at some point we'll end up talking about <laughs> Tolkien's weird fucking yeah. arm and hand thing. And, uh, it's not king shaming, but it's, it's there. <laughs> And and so any time that he leaves it open, that he uses a term like fair or smart, he is leaving it up to interpretation. And your interpretation may be that Swarthy means Mediterranean or olive skin or something like that. Your interpretation may be that fair is light skin. But that is your interpretation is where that ends. It is not something that you can prescribe to anybody. Oh, 
I almost skipped over something important going straight to Lord of the Rings. The Numenorians are made up of those three houses of men. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely houses of fear. So every motherfucker that wants to say Tarmiriel can't be black, fuck you. I would also like to point out that in Letters 154, Tolkien specifically says that Numenorians are, quote, hardly distinguishable from the elves. And therefore, I am putting out there that elves can fucking be black. Okay. If Numenorian men can be black, elves can also fucking be black. Hell yeah. Hell yes. And there's also that, that letter I'm looking for right now where Tolkien basically says that Numenorians he envisions as being closest in like cultural descendants. Egyptians. Egyptians. Yeah, Egyptians. Uh, yeah. It was one of the later letters. Amy uh, talks about it in depth in her book. It is from letter number 211. So he says Numenorians have gone to a proud and archaic, I think are best pictured in parentheses say in parentheses Egyptian terms. In many ways, they resembled Egyptians. Love of empowering gigantic masses. And yeah, and the Egyptians were majority brown and black skin, but there were also when the Greek invasion came in, tons of different peoples were in Egypt. Like I feel like a lot of this, like some of this talk about you know like where certain people um should be coded as being from based on their skin color is you know it's yet another example of this whole medieval europe was white and it's like no shit you guys you don't remember the fucking you know roman empire like they were all over the damn place and so it's sort of like it's a, it's a whole i i want to see i want to see all all sorts of skin colors in in numenor and I feel like Rings of Power is trying to bring that same reflection to, to their casting. Yeah, one last thing before I uh, completely go away from these men. The Dunedain are specifically described as being taller and darker than the men of Bree. So also give me Black Aragorn. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Snap to that. Who would be a good Black Aragorn? Another show. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The answer is yes. I would like to see all of those adaptations that would be beautiful. Um, but no, this matters in our present day, right? Like, as there is a TV show that is being produced that has been cast, it matters to have representation. So, just for a little bit of a picture of where at least the US markets currently stand, US. U.S.-based data about streaming TV shows. All of this comes from a research project from Common Sense Media called the Inclusion Imperative. Asian people are about 6% of the U.S. population and make up about 2% of leading roles on streaming television. Black people, 12% of the population, 5% of the main roles. Hispanic and Latino people. Latino people are 19% of the population and only 6% of main roles, while white people are only 62% of the population, but occupy 76% of leading roles. So where we are statistically is about 50% off of what actual representation would be, and that matters for our ideas of who gets a voice at the table, who should be included, and if they're being overrepresented or underrepresented. And that matters. Mm -hmm. 
because it has real world impacts on how young people, how people who have grown up in this culture are impacted. This dissonance, statistically, according to numerous studies, aggravates racial tensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, erasure and negative and stereotypical portrayals of people adversely affects how people see themselves, how people of color and people of other marginalized identities see themselves based on what is what is depicted on our TV screens. So it does matter that Amazon and any other group that is casting a television show today does actually make an effort to be true to representation as the world exists today. Yeah. Like crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's totally. The thing is, it's like if if Middle Earth is ostensibly meant to be our Earth in way, way back, there's absolutely no reason that it should look in a particular <laughs> in a particular way in specifically a particular white nationalist way of looking at things. There's no there's no reason that, that Middle Earth shouldn't look like our Earth today because, I mean, it's ostensibly supposed to be our Earth. And the other thing is, like, you know, Middle Earth exists in context, right, to, you know, to where we are right now. And so I feel like I feel like some of these different arguments that people have been or these different complaints that people have been having about about how how certain peoples in Middle Earth should or shouldn't look is also kind of, you know, relevant here. And, you know, it's sort of like, who are you to say what, who are you to say what that actually looks like when the Earth is so, the Earth itself is so diverse? So in looking at some of these, do we want to kind of transition a little bit from like the men into like the elves and the dwarves as well? And the hobbits? And how they should look, quote unquote. I mean, like Tolkien is pretty fucking explicit about the hobbits. He's not ex- very explicit about elves and dwarves, though. I couldn't actually find anything about. There's nothing universal. There's both about certain, even certain groups all having a you know certain characteristic, but nothing saying you know that all every universally. There's nothing all encompassing for elves or for dwarves. There's very little in terms of physical descriptions of dwarves, period. And mm-hmm. for uh, elves, it ends up limited mostly to like their culture. I'm yeah. 100% taking that Numenorean men being basically indistinguishable from elves as that's the kind of diversity you should be able to find in elves as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a good measurement a good standard of measurement. And again, if if it's left ambiguous, then your interpretation is as valid as my own. And I think yeah. it matters that people are able to see themselves in Middle Earth. It's a, a fictional universe based off of our own Earth. So there should be representation and we should all be able to access that today. And the reality is that no matter how much so many of us love Tolkien's stories and Middle Earth and what have you, those of us who hold any marginalized identity are well aware of how painful it can be in reading, especially the most reductive ideas of 
who has access to this story. It's something you'll see online all the time with these folks having comments of like, well, if it's if it's fiction, you should just be able to see yourself in the fictional universe. And mm-hmm. why does it matter if elves are black or what have you? Well, it matters because anyone who is excluded from those descriptions has to work harder to see themselves in this place that we love. And that shouldn't be. And, and one problem is, is, you know, dark skinned people are not unrepresented in Middle Earth. We have danced around <laughs> the actual depictions of dark skinned people in Middle Earth, which are yeah. the Easterlings, oh. which are the Dunlending, which are the Hard Dream, which are, you know, are a fucking disaster area of racial stereotypes. Yeah. You know, people with like broad noses that are savage or whatever you want to fucking imagine the Poopalmen are like kind of thing. Like, it's, yeah. it's a yeah. mess. Like, Orientalism and shit like that. And it's just not great. And so. lovely Mongol types. Indeed. Squint, slant eyes. Yeah, exactly. So, so for to have an example, in even in an adaptation where you've got, you know, people of darker skin that are represented as the more heroic races is honestly just overdue and kind of an equal act. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that unlovely, least lovely Mongol types. I, mm. Oh, God, it makes me, my skin crawl to even repeat that. That is a direct yeah. quote from Tolkien about yeah. how the orcs should look. Yeah, It is interesting to note, though, that he often couches some of those things that make you go, oh, boy. <laughs> uh, he often couches those in how someone who is not familiar with their group of peoples would perceive them. And so he does often throw that back onto the reader as opposed to perhaps the narrator. So there's some some question there, some some nuance, but uh yeah, the, the phrasing is great. No. Yeah. It's definitely like I think that there's some nuance there, but I also, you know, I also definitely think that it's it's fair to say that like, that's, that's a that's pretty shitty of, of you to say, Tolkien. Like, yeah. come on. <laughs> I would like to point out, he said that in June of 1958. He should have known better by then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. for, for a lot of this stuff that we're talking, I mean, again, a whole other episode about Tolkien's personal racism. And like, he, he he's a racist in the same way that all people are are racist and that we we benefit from the um systems of racism and are specifically benefit because of the color of our skin and in opposition to people who have different colors of skin and yeah i basically i guess i just i don't want us to let token go off the hook too too much because but i do think that as we've been talking about there was a lot of contradiction in what he was saying and there was a lot he had a lot of different ideas about about how he saw the various peoples of of his creation, and I definitely think that there's there's a lot of room. There's a, there's more than enough room for Black people to be in Middle Earth. There's way more room for Black elves and Black dwarves in Middle Earth than a lot of what these shitheads online are saying. And I I guess that's kind of like my my ultimate point. 
one of the points where it matters a lot to me is the statements that some of the actors who are portraying these characters have made. Uh, so like Ismail Cruz Cordova in an interview talked about reading Lord of the Rings as a kid and saying, I felt very represented spiritually and intellectually, but not an image. There was no one that looked like me. I was a child and that was very present. So I traversed through life and had this dream of becoming an elf. So when I saw myself in the mirror with full armor and my ears on, I was an elf. I just, you know, there was a tear or two. That little boy felt very proud. And I know that that magic that I felt looking at myself in that mirror is something that I knew a new generation, but also adults are going to feel. That's my guy. That's me. I'm so excited to see him as... <laughs> I'm so excited I, I to see him show. And that's something that all of us as white people and, and generally a lot of these you know critics are largely white dudes, sometimes white women, very rarely people of color. They just don't comprehend because they, they have grown up seeing themselves represented in every form of media, right? And so it's just, it's not something... They just lack the empathy to understand, hey, this does matter, even though it doesn't feel like it for you because you've been taking this representation for granted your entire life. You've never had it happen to you. Yeah. Well, and Sophia Nomete, whose name I am probably mispronouncing, I apologize, Sophia, uh, who plays... Uh, You'll definitely hear this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gotta have high high hopes. Uh, no, <laughs> she's getting in on the ground floor of this podcast. For sure. Hey, Tim has had some tweets liked by writers for the show, so you know yeah. nothing's impossible. Yeah. Uh, but no, Sophia Nombete talks about this in some of the interviews too. She is playing a dwarf queen named uh, Disa, who is uh, largely a new construct for the show, and. Um, I'm sure it will surprise none of our listeners to recognize that she has drawn so much controversy and criticism just in the fact of her mere existence as a Black woman being cast in this show and speaking openly about what that means. Also in an interracial marriage. Yes. Yes. We're in the um, But she's, she's made the point several times that uh, along the lines of like, now, in this instance, we're seen and we're heard and we're acknowledged as having a right to be here as much as anybody else. And that that is what is so key for me, is that the interpretations that we have of Tolkien's works and Middle Earth and all of that in adaptation are accessible to everyone because there is textual support for it, but also because we live in the world today. We live in the world of 2022, and so yes, the world of 2022 ought to be minimally reflected in the works that we create now. Absolutely. But this is cultural appropriation. You wouldn't cast all white people in a Black Panther movie. You wouldn't cast all white people in a Kung Fu movie. Lord. That's my life. Quentin Tarantino would put white people in a Kung Fu movie. Wouldn't have. Yeah. Shit would. I love this Tarantino, but I openly acknowledge that he is problematic shit. Also, might have some things in common with Tolkien in terms of the appendage fetish. Appendage fetishes, yeah. That's exactly where I was going. Indeed. Indeed. 
I would like to point out in terms of cultural appropriation, you can't appropriate the dominant culture. That's assimilation. It's a completely yeah. different thing. Yeah. It's, White replacement it's, theory. Oh, oh, me. That's, 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 another, that's another show. <laughs> but it's like in the exact same way that there's no such thing as reverse racism, there's no such thing as black people appropriating from from white people because again whiteness isn't the culture i also like in response to a lot of this stuff is like number one it's like you can't appropriate from the dominant culture and number two when you say things like oh why don't you guys just make up your own stories why don't you go like you know make up your own fictional characters and tell stories about them like that's what we've been doing like that's what black panther is for for one thing and it's like it, it implies that it implies that you know like separate but equal maybe is that is that what people <laughs> yeah. want yeah <laughs> it implies that like that there's no room for it it goes back to like there's no room for you here it's like yeah. that it implies that you're not actually a part of this story you're not actually a part of this culture cultural segregation the folks saying this are tattling on themselves oh yeah yeah no they really are and it's just and it's just like the idea that you know like telling people to go make up their own thing it's like that's that's what all marginalized people have been doing for ages where have you been that's the existence of fan fiction is a testament to what we've been doing and it's like it just kind of supports that division between between people and saying and kind of putting down that line saying that like you're not actually a part of this story at all and you never were and that's that's absolutely not true. It, it, it's a historical. It's a textual. It's it's not a valid argument based on the texts that exist. Plus, it's not as simple as okay, I'll go make my own thing. There are still very real systemic barriers to minorities and, and underprivileged and marginalized groups making their own media. Because look at the fucking executives at any major studio, and it'll be eighty to ninety percent white dudes, kind of thing. Like, and those yeah. are the people that are making decisions on what gets greenlit and what doesn't, then you're never going to have any sort of equality whatsoever or equity in terms of who's represented in the story, who has those lead, you know, those lead protagonists. Yeah. One of my uh, my Facebook friends, his name's Milton Davis. He is a black author who writes steampunk and fantasy and science fiction. He's a lovely man. Uh, he posted something about this exact thing about how black writers get shit upon for playing in other people's sandboxes for wanting to write for, you know, mainstream comic books, stuff like that. And people tell them, oh, well, just make your own thing, like make make your own thing and make it like, you know, black led. And even his black fans who tell him to do that then don't buy his stuff when he actually does that because they're characters they don't know. He's, you know, doing something new, but they, you know, they, they want another Spider-Man. Yeah, they've got so much invested in those existing characters that that's what they are ultimately looking for. Not only that, but those minority characters or, or uh, characters that represent marginalized groups, they never get the same promotion no. that your big name characters do as well, right? So you're fucking like, recess line at the start. 
Yeah, at this point, he's set, he's just self-publishing because he couldn't find a publishing house that would give him equal status to other people. So he just decided to start doing it himself. And I mean, he's actually doing pretty good. So like, kudos to you. But like, it, it's a huge fucking problem. Like, it, unless there's equal representation all the way up in companies, you're just never going to get true like equity. And it's starting yeah. to happen in comics the, the like the actual comic book not necessarily you're you're in my fucking we all have to have uh not necessarily in the movies and and you know secondary media but uh you know like right now there is a black cat that operates in new york city that is one of the sons of lucius fox anybody that knows Morgan Freeman's ball from the dark Knight. there is uh superman's son is currently the superman of earth and he is bisexual uh, one of the Robins has come out as bisexual. There is a fantastic uh, black female, I think at least bisexual, if not man, Green Lantern right now, written by N.K. Jemison. Uh, if you have not read her many parts sector, I highly recommend it. Really, really good. Plays on a lot of really great social issues and stuff like that as well. So that is starting to happen as well in the comics. But again, comics aren't what's making the, the only reason that's happening. Because that's not the bread and butter of Warner Brothers and Disney events these days, right? So they're making their money off the MCU, movies, TV shows, and stuff like that. So, you know, they're like, okay, well, this is kind of secondary, so we'll let you play around the sandbox here along with. Yeah. To say, well, what, what else did we want to touch on briefly? <laughs> Do we want to. So that was our first topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was Christ. part one in our in our five part series. <laughs> I have several other soapboxes to climb on, you guys. As right. do I. Dwarf women should have beards. Dwarf women should have beards, and you can. I will die on this fucking hill. Dwarf uh. women should have beards. Dwarf women in the Amazon Prime show do. That is excellent. However, Vulcan. <laughs> did write. There are three pieces of Tolkien's writing that mentions dwarf women and beards. In Histories of Middle-Earth, War of the Jewels, we have an elf who's accounting for like his narrative here that dwarf women have beards. It's Pengalod. And he's an elf and an outsider. So it, that's a point from his perspective because the most common thing that we hear about is that Gimli in Return of the King talked about there are a few dwarf women probably no more than a third of the whole people. They seldom walk abroad except at great need. They're in voice and appearance and in garb if they must go out and journey. Uh, so like the dwarf men that the eyes and ears of other people cannot tell them apart. This has given rise to the foolish notion that there are no dwarf women and the dwarves grow out of stone and all that. So yes, striking similarities and all that, but there is a note that Tolkien wrote uh, in a letter and that's published in Nature of Middle Earth that talks about all male dwarves have beards, uh, but doesn't go into stating that female dwarves do, and it's not stressed in the way that male dwarves is in this marginal note that's published in Nature of Middle-Earth. So there is definitely an argument that there wouldn't need to be this in the depiction, or there might be some flexibility, but for all the people shouting about it on the internet, 
kind of a moot point because the characters as depicted in the Amazon Prime show that they're yelling about do in fact have beards. Issa has little baby fluff kind of uh, stuff going on, like a chin strap, but it's not full. Yeah. Which I think flies in the face of you can't tell them apart. Because if she doesn't have like the same amount of beard as the other like male dwarves, you can tell them apart. <laughs> Alicia and I just want bearded women. I'm sorry. Fuck yes. <laughs> I mean, I yes. That's totally valid. I just don't understand the people that are making that one of the crucial points. If that is yeah. like what you're going to let break the entire series for you, then like you weren't really invested. We're just looking for something to fucking shit. If any hair is going to break this for you, it should be the elf hair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a whole thing. My oh, gosh. Lord. Oh my no, goodness. The, the thing that I do note in that in that Return of the King reference is that the the depiction of dwarf women being so alike in voice appearance and garb that if they must go on a journey, they look so like the dwarf men. This suggests to me that perhaps when they're at home, their grooming habits might be different than when they are traveling on the road or what have you. There's an argument for differences in adaptation that even if it's not the thing that we most want to see, whatever they put in the show, as long as there's a a note back to, a, a path back to what's in the text, I'll be happy. What if it's an issue of safety? What if it's the dwarven women who travel abroad don't want to be perceived as dwarven men so that they're safe. I am 100% down for dwarf women yeah. not wanting to deal with Middle Earth <laughs> dudes' fuckery, okay? No Middle Earth fuckboys. Yeah, they don't want to deal, yeah, they don't want to deal with fuckboys. Yeah. That's what it is. And it's they like, put on their know... beards, they grow out their beards, yeah. they put on their beards, whatever it is, in the same way yeah. That we all put on our headphones and read our books because we don't want to be talked to on public transit. It's, it's yeah. like you know, it's like it's like ladies going out without makeup or like without having shaved their legs or whatever because they don't want fucking unwanted male attention. How is that? Yep. This could be the exact same situation. Or yeah, I am one. so down for that reading. <laughs> yep, I am super super duper into it. Well, <laughs> we were talking about elves' hair. I know a lot of people have gotten really upset. About short hair on el- on elves. So there's two classes of this one, right? There's, <laughs> there's Rondir, the dark-skinned elf, who has, you know, basically his, his hair is very co-shaven. Uh, and then there's... Fresh buzz. The fucking used car salesman hair on... It's Elder so Lore, fucking bad. It's so... I'm sorry. It's so fucking bad. You did Celebrimbor and Elrond dirty. I'm already mad about Celebrimbor because I feel like the actor's too old to play the, the, the elf they cast him to play. And, you know, I, I understand that's at least mildly problematic. I don't really care. Celebrimbor's my boy. Him and Anatar are my favorite slash pairing. <laughs> I'm mad. But the fucking wigs that they put on these guys are atrocious. They're so bad. It's like 70s porn star slash insurance like salesman. It's so bad. Oh, listen, I call them the Pantene Pro-V elves. Uh, oh, I love because, that. Because, yes, it is not, is it my vision? It is not. But I do have to acknowledge that 
Tolkien doesn't say anywhere in the text that elves all have long hair and that this is the stylistic choice of all elves through all three ages of Middle Earth. Like, it's a choice, but it's not one that's prohibited by the text. So my ire has to be entirely personal. <laughs> we just need to look yeah. at the second age as the 70s of Middle Earth. I don't want yeah, to. Yeah, why not? A lot of poor style and hair choices for oh, me. Oh, I'm into it. I'm so, but is there a fucking toll uh, for your car keys when you walk into Rivendell? I mean, I'm not going to be mad if there is. <laughs> okay. 34 I'm, of that fic probably does exist, right? I was right? going to say, that fic definitely exists. That fic definitely exists. Listen, someone was real, real mad on the internet and was like, what are we going to do next? Have polyamorous elves? And I was like, well, that's an idea. That's also a thing you can do. When you've fucking been alive for thousands and thousands of years, you're gonna get sick of fucking the same dude. Yeah. Like, let's be honest. Like, <laughs> look, third, third age Galadriel is definitely not fucking teleporting. No, she's fucking Gandalf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then she Absolutely. sailed off to Valinor with Gandalf and not with her fucking husband, left her husband to chill in uh, Mirkwood with Grandwheel. I mean, just saying, what are they doing? I, I also think that, like, you know, living for thousands and thousands of years, you're going to want to change your hairstyle maybe once in a while. Like, I would get really fucking sick of long hair if I was 3,000 years old. So and they're all, not all going to be winners. Listen, yeah, they're not all going to be winners. And also, it's like, you know, just trying something new, you know, just going through a, a fun phase. And, you know, a couple hundred years, sort of, a couple hundred years, we'll get it fixed. Elves do have a sort of ennui at times. Yeah. This might just be their bangs phase. The second yeah. age might just be their bangs phase. It might be the mullet phase, you know? So what you're saying is it could be wor- it could get worse. Oh my god. <laughs> you guys know that meme about how like Legolas talks with a really country accent because he's from Mirkwood? Legolas with a mullet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. It hurts Mwah. us, precious. <laughs> Perfection. <laughs> Perfection. Oh, I would I would I would watch the hell out of that show. <laughs> Ruck Dynasty, but Mirkwood, basically. Okay, Gimli gets to style his hair in a mohawk, like a gel mohawk. Yeah. Like the two of them are just attending a punk concert. Since we're talking about Galadriel and Celeborn now, let's uh, move on to. Yes. Galadriel wasn't a warrior. She never wore armor. She never (sighs) pulled up a sword. Okay. Oh my God. Let me ascend to my soapbox here. <laughs> that voice is almost too good. I'm like, <laughs> so the idea that Galadriel could not have been a warrior is banana pants to me. There are so many points in the text where Tolkien talks about her leadership in a an aspect or a realm which is conceivably militarily oriented. So she, he says. She, She's one of the leaders of the Noldorian Rebellion against the Valar. That's in the Silmarillion. In fact, the first whole slew of references that I'm going to talk about are in the Silmarillion. And that's, you know, the most closely published to Tolkien's own lifetime with the most editing of his own in there. So I I, I want to prioritize those. In 
flight of the Noldor, he says, Galadriel, the only women of the Noldor to stand that day valiant against her, the contending princes. I mean, that term valiant is a pretty key one in terms of military valor and all of that. Tolkien does know words and does know what he's talking about and what the connotations of being valiant in this military setting means. And he is suggesting this to us. And these are even in the earliest writings about Galadriel. We also have Led by Fingolfin and his sons and by Finrod and Galadriel as another reference within that same chapter of the Silmarillion. Uh, in Of the Voyages of Erendil, we have Celeborn of Doriath and Galadriel, his wife, who alone remained of those who led the Noldor to exile in Valerian. Uh, in Rings of Power in the Third Age, he says she was the mightiest and fairest of all the elves that remained in Middle-earth. So this is just from the Silmarillion alone. There are a half dozen references that at least make a case for Galadriel as being a leader militarily among the elves as they fight. Those are not the only references by far. As part of uh, what we're, we're going to end up mentioning our Rings of Power book club that Grace and Alicia and myself were part of in like five months leading up to the premiere of Rings of Power where we read through every last fucking word, contradictory or not, of what Tolkien wrote about the Second Age, you know, from Silmarillion to you know, the Unfinished Tales, History of Middle-Earth, everything. And there were a couple in there that were in of Galadriel and Kelvin, right? This chapter, one of the last chapters in Unfinished Tales. And it is one of the last things that Tolkien wrote before he passed away. He was working on it in the final month of his life. Yeah. And in that chapter, Tolkien explicitly says, in reference to Galadriel, she fought fiercely against Feanor in defense of her mother's kin, and also she with Celeborn fought heroically in defense of Aquilante against the assault of Nold. Both of these are referencing the same event, referencing the first thing saying, but both of those very explicitly say fought. Not, you know, resisted or something sort of ambiguous like that. It is fought. It is, you know, the violent, hands-on battle kind of sense of the word, not like that it was just like a, a political resistance or something like that. It's so much harder for me to see Celeborn doing anything of value than it is to see <laughs> Galatriel as a warrior. Yeah, that's the real unbelievable thing there. <laughs> we just had this discussion too, you know, that you know, we were having it sort of facetiously with regards to elves changing their hairstyles and stuff, but like legit, these are beings that are immortal that live for thousands and thousands of years. They are not going to be static over that whole period. They're going to change, they're going to, you know, respond to events that are happening around them in different ways. And but there are plenty of people that you could look at right now and say, like, I bet that person's never been in a fight in their life. Maybe they were in the military. You cannot look at somebody now and say that you know what they were 20 years ago, let alone an age ago in the case of the life. And there are plenty of people that uh, that you look at now and think, gosh, I don't know that this is the person that I would want, you know, make making policy and everything down the road because of, you know, how they behave in, I don't know, college uh, that turn out to have actually really great ideas as they get more life experience. And Galadriel does get a little bit of life experience over three ages of Middle Earth. Like we're familiar, most familiar with this version of her from Lord of the Rings, which is a single year in the third age. 
there's a lot of her history that comes before that. And the different versions that Tolkien wrote are contradictory. Christopher Tolkien talks about, like, there's honestly probably nothing more more contradictory than the different versions of Galadriel and Celeborn's history. And there are all kinds of contradictions and tensions between these things, where they traveled at various times, and what part of, of you know, Arda they were from, and where they were, and what at what point they joined a battle, and all that. He, he went back and forth on all of this. But the thing that comes through in all of the different versions is this commonality of Galadriel's involvement in what is arguably a military context. So in Unfinished Tales, as well as Peoples of Middle-earth, we have the Shibboleth of Feanor, where it talks about Galadriel and says her mother name was Nerwen, man-maiden, and she grew to be tall beyond the measure even of the women of Noldor. She was strong of body, mind, and will, a match for both the lore masters and the athletes of the Eldar. Like, we're talking about Galadriel's physical prowess in athletic feats here. I want to go quickly on to what a mother name is as well, because mother yeah. also have multiple names. They have like name their mother gives them a name their father gives them one that I think just like what they sort of go by in public, which in Gladriel. But the mother name in particular is in some cases Tolkien writes, you know, to in most cases basically supposed to be the name that most represents the essence of that elf. Because the mother is supposed to have some insight into what their child will become. So you can make a case that Erwin, man, you know, it translates literally into man maiden, is like Gladriel's truest name. Yeah. yeah. And Tolkien, in a letter, letter 348, also says of Gladriel, Gladriel was then, was then I, back in her history of. Amazon disposition and bound up her hair as a crown when taking part in athletic feats. And it is worth noting that every other time that he applies the term Amazon to a woman in the legendarium, it is in the context of women who fought in battle, who had a warrior aspect to their experience. It wasn't just uh, just a descriptor or whatever. It was a very intentional. And this maps onto a pattern of usage. Tolkien's no stranger to gender fuckery either, right? Like, look at Aowen as a character. Look at I am no man, right? Like, he's this is, is an idea he's played with in the past is female characters carrying traditionally male traits. It's not out of the realm of possibility to imagine, especially as he was getting further you know, later in his life and, you know, had lived through the women's rights movement that he started to think, like, maybe I should have written this character a little bit more dimensionally. And that is one of the last characters he was, you know, trying to sort of retcon, if you will, up to the, the month of his death. Absolutely. Yeah. And then there's also some mentions in Unfinished Tales that she looked upon the dwarves with the eye of a commander. And what stands out to me in this is that at the point that this phrase appears in the history of Galadriel and Celeborn, it's talking about the Second Age. Between the years. 40750 in this version she is present with Celeborn and Celebrimbor in the region 
And she's also noted that she studies under Aule, who's the uh, the member of the Valar who is about craftsmanship and forging and whatever. So there's a whole lot of people on the internet who want to come out, come out with like, well, she's a strong woman in her own right, so she doesn't need a sword. We don't need to have a sword wielding version of her. Like Galadriel could know how to forge her own sword. I, Galadriel does not need your reductive reductive revisionist ideas of who her character is over 8,000 years, my dude. Yeah. She, she's fine, and she's cool. <laughs> yeah, and why not have a sword-wielding Galadriel? I mean, why, why the fuck not? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also something that I noted, because I, I started going through a lot of the Silmarillion at one point, in, kind of inspired by this, like, well, you know, Galadriel doesn't need a sword sort of thing. Other... Other people have went, Galadriel never has a sword kind of, you know, fuckery arguments. And I I did notice something. And the thing that I noticed is that people like to compare Galadriel in the Second Age to like Gilgalad and Elendil and, and people who are in the sparse writings of the Second Age specifically noted as being military commanders and being part of the last alliance of men and elves and fighting against Sauron and all of that. And um, the first time that Gilgalad's spear, Agalos, is mentioned, he is in his death scene. The Spoilers, you guys. I'm so sorry. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, spoilers for the series. This book that's going to really? be... <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> the yeah, first time... my favorite. The first time that Elendil's sword is mentioned is that Narsil is mentioned is in that same death scene. What? That's actually what? <laughs> what guys? Spoilers. <laughs> Narsil was broken. What? Narsil was broken. Oh my! You guys, God. I'm sorry. Spoilers. Spoilers for the Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring prologue from the Peter Jackson film. I know that like 22 years or whatever is too soon on, but <laughs> the first 10 minutes of the film. <laughs> Spoilers. But no, this this is actually something that we see actually fairly regularly throughout the Silmarillion. The way that Tolkien records this history is that he mentions a weapon when it is of particular importance, usually in a grand battle scene that might in fact be a death scene for a character and a major turning point in the battles. So, I mean, Morgoth and his hammer Grand are actually only really noted in that in that scene where, uh, again, spoilers, where he's defeated. And Fingolfin's uh, mail and sword Ringle are noted in that same scene. Tolkien's style of writing in this in this age and for the Silmarillion and, and these other historical notes is not the narrative style of a novel. It's a historical account. And so these details are added in at the point when they would be recorded in history in this way. And similarly, he doesn't use the word fought very often. It's really iconic when he does it's really important and impactful when he does usually he's giving others like synonyms or allusions so galadriel took up rule and defense against sauron is something that's mentioned in unfinished tales Celeborn withstood the assault but 
at the same time, you have Gilgalad defends Linden and the Grey Havens and some peoples of Middle Earth. You have Galadriel escaped from Nargothrond on the day of its destruction, or in a different version, fled Nargothrond before its fall. Well, you also have Isildur escapes from the orcs who attack them. Elrond was able to extricate himself from an attack. All of the time throughout the Silmarillion, male characters escape. They aid. They defend. They command. They guard. They're overwhelmed. And these are some of the same pieces of language that are used to describe Galadriel's actions. So there is at least as strong an argument for Galadriel being a military figure and a fighter and a warrior throughout at least part of her time in Arda, as there is for all of these male characters who it's generally accepted for. And gosh, what could the difference be in our perceptions? Hmm. Hmm. It's hard to put my finger on it. It's just on the tip of my tongue. I'm sure I'll get to it someday. Yes, Lajine. (laughs) god damn it (laughs) and i've broken never oh no i was gonna say it was kind of great that it was the uh, the dude who said that too um... (laughs) he fits in well yep yeah do we want to move on from do we have anything else anything more to say about Galadriel or oh, I do I do I thank you say, so much for asking there's always <laughs> so much more to say about Galadriel I mean just one more yeah. point and this is my like salty point it, it, it's actually something that I started looking at I had picked up a copy of uh, Karen Winfonstead's Atlas of Middle Earth I was looking through some of the maps and nerding out about them and and noticed the particular note in there that I checked the index, went back to the Silmarillion and started looking at. And it's this particular note. On the return of the Noldor, Tolkien notes that Finrod is in Nargothrond. Galadriel is living with Celeborn and Melion, learning great lore and wisdom from Melion, and Turgon is in Neverest. Following the paragraph of each of these three examples of where these three particular elves are, he says, Now Morgoth, believing the report of his spies that the lords of the Noldor were abroad with little thought of war, made trial of the strength and watchfulness of his enemies. And of course, that didn't work out well for him in the long run. He, it's Tolkien talking about, by making these assumptions, Morgoth underestimates these these particular characters, uh, including Galadriel, who are, in fact, preparing for war and combat and defense. And I just want to point out that this is basically what the people ranting in the YouTube videos in the comment section are doing. They are making the exact same mistakes as Morgoth. Yep. So exact same assumptions. Mm-hmm. Yep. They grounded in kind of the, the same issues. Yeah. Yeah. Same mysterious issue that we can't name. Again, tip of my tongue. Are we basically just calling Morgoth misogynist at this point? I mean, why why not? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I believe that he contains multitudes of (laughs) other problematic behaviors, but I mean, let's not excuse him. (laughs) Morgoth, fuck boy. If the boot fits your lame foot, (laughs) deep cut, deep cut, deep cut. (laughs) 
Morgoth defeated. Yeah. So again, as we talked about with, you know, the depiction of casting of, of people of different ethnicities in Middle Earth, there are certainly all kinds of arguments and interpretations that are available based on how Galadriel is depicted in the texts. But there are so many threads that run through that it's really, really difficult to make any sort of compelling case that Galadriel can't have this physical prowess, can't be a warrior, can't wield sword. That may not be your personal preference. It may not be your personal vision. But it's really hard to make a case that all of the instances in the text should be ignored in favor of your personal vision that is the one and only way. Totally a valid. Totally. Yep. Why don't we move on to some of the kind of more general complaints that I think are grounded less in some of this misogyny and racism and kind of more talking about some of the issues with that are inherent in adaptation. And this is kind of like the whiny crybaby section that I'm kind of like, guys, just you're, grow up. You know how, how adaptations work. You know how movies are made, or don't you? This is kind of the, um, the complaints that are things about like the timeline being compressed and original oh, characters. <laughs> oh, I, excuse me. Stepping up my lines. Have yeah. at it. Have at it. The timeline is being compressed, guys. It's the entire age. Why are they making it only into one lifetime? There's only five fucking seasons, my dude. That's why. <laughs> because it's not going to be super exciting, super engaging series if, like, every season you're meeting like multiple generations of Numenorean yeah. leaders. Kind of thing. It, it, yeah. took, it took 57 years for Sauron to, you know, basically get in the good graces of Farfarazan in Numenor. It's like we're not going to wait. We're not going to watch 57 years of this of this <laughs> show. Like, good lord. If we're no going to do that, we're going to do this series in real time. We're going to be here a long time. Yeah. As someone who just read everything Tolkien has ever written about Numenor, do I wish that they would start this earlier and not start with Muriel and Arpharazon? 100%. There's so many good stories that happen in Numenor. Yes. But I also understand that it's a fucking TV show and they're not wanting to bring on a new cast member build like trust and love for that cast member and then just have them die over and over and over again yeah because they're <laughs> mortal men and that's what they do <laughs> with right. the way that Tolkien writes the immortal characters and long-lived characters and then characters who have like lifespans closer to our current age of humanity you would have people dying every quarter episode and it's just yeah. really hard to make a compelling narrative argument in about eight to ten minutes of why we should care about that person. Yeah, or even less. You know, I mean, I think it, it. You know, you kind of make a lot of decisions about what you're watching and what you're reading in just a few minutes. So I'm kind of like, for the same reasons that in the Fellowship of the Ring, we did not watch 17 years pass between Bilbo's birthday party and Gandalf telling Frodo about the One Ring. Uh, I think the timeline being compressed from about, you know, several thousand years to, you know, maybe a few years is is a good and wise choice. I think it can still reasonably be 
be like half of a lifetime kind of thing, right? Like there's some of these characters we can grow up with. And there totally. can be big there there could still be big time jumps between seasons and stuff like that. It's just, you know, big time jumps meaning like a decade or two, not a century or two. Kind of yeah. Yeah. Make this and everybody we've met and grown to love is has gone to the ground. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. And in our human perceptions, a timeline jump of 10 years when in the actual timeline it would have been 140 or what have you means the same thing to us. Our lives are not 140 years long. And so we do understand time passes on a different on a different level than what it means for a Numenorian or an elf. And that's okay. It's going to be humans watching. Yeah. Tim, would you like to read the, uh, the next complaint here? <laughs> Why can't they just pick the Tolkien role? Why did they kind of make up new characters? This is basically just fan fiction at this point. <laughs> oh, this is just fan fiction. It's like, man, I wish it were fan fiction. I'm sure that there's <laughs> plenty of fodder there that would blow some of these people's minds. The the thing is, is like ultimately Tolkien didn't write that many major characters for the second age. And so there's going to have to be some creative license. There's going to have to be there's going to have to be some invention, even around those characters that he did write about, such as such as Tarmiriel and Arkarazan. And the reason being that most of what his writings were for the Second Age read as histories rather than as narrative arts. And so in order to bring an audience into the world, you're going to have to have, you know, things happen in a way that, that brings us along with the characters rather than kind of in retrospect and in telling us. And the other major point here is that there are, few, there are fewer than a thousand characters in Middle-earth and in Amun across three ages that span over 10,000 years. At some point, somebody whose name we don't know is going to need to be there and is going to show up, right? There's all, there's all sorts of stories about all the people who are not named in these histories. And I think that that gives us a lot of opportunity to, you know, make up, to make new stories. And to kind of imagine what life is like for these folks, these kind of normal folks, really, who aren't necessarily these big named, these big named characters, and how they're responding to the actions of these big named characters. Like I'm now, I'm kind of like spiraling into fanfic territory, where I'm kind of like, what kind of feelings would a Tellery have at the Kinslaying? You know, what kind of feelings would would some other uh, folks and you know. What were what was going through the minds of all of these normal people um, when the War of Wrath happened and Valyrian sank? It was like you know the end of the fucking world, man. How <laughs> well all these angels Spoilers. and gods and stuff are like <laughs> flying around in the air. You know what's happening on the ground? What's happening to these people? And so I, I'm I I get more excited about the idea that there are more original characters coming into this because. Uh, I'd like to see a Middle Earth that reflects the, the elves to men, from hobbits and harfoots to ants. I would, I want to see a range of peoples because that's that's what Middle Earth is all about. It's about a whole bunch of different people. I'm excited about this too, and I'm also excited because I keep joking about 
spoilers, but genuinely, there's the least written about the Second Age. A lot of these stories are going to be new for a vast portion of the viewing audience. But for some folks, who, let's face it, are nerds like us, and have read every single page about the Second Age that we can get our hands on, we know how a lot of the character stories turn out. And so I'm excited for the mystery of some of the original characters and not knowing what their fates are, if there is happiness waiting for them or tragedy. Like, I want to experience those stakes as a viewer also. I don't just want to know what I, what's going to happen everywhere. I want to be surprised. And I'd rather be surprised on some storylines that I'm not familiar with than have something be changed dramatically that's truly in contrast to Tolkien's writings, not just the things that he's already contradicted himself on. Uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times now. Um, there are only about 200 pages written about the Second Age across all of Tolkien's work, not including the Notion Club papers and things like that that are really kind of tertiary. The Notion Club papers were Tolkien's foray into like time travel science fiction that's based around Numenor, which doesn't have a lot of bearing on what actually plays out in Middle-earth. But yeah, so there's about 200 pages, and I half, two-thirds of that are about named characters we already know. They're about Galadriel and Celeborn and like Numenorean kings and all of that. Yeah. yeah. So there is there is a lot of room to have additional characters, and I'm 100% crazy. I don't want them to be taking like horrific liberties with people whose stories we know how they're going to end up. Like if for whatever reason they decide that Gilgalad survives the last alliance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no going off Elrond or, you know, things like yeah. that. It's like, that's, I mean, that, that's, number one, that's not going to happen, but it's like, I want different things that I don't know about to happen, because I'm like, like you guys say, we, we know what happens to these to these folks. And I, I think that some of the mystery and some of the surprises can happen and be found in, you know, in how these things will kind of unfold in this in, in this new story. I want space for the storytelling because Tolkien gives us all of this amazing history, but I want to see the story adapted to screen too. And that's going to take a lot of liberties beyond what's on the page in a way that's really, I think, respectful to Tolkien's work. I think that's really possible. But if we, if we were just adapting a history book, it wouldn't be a particularly compelling adaptation. <laughs> And the Tolkien estate shared that sentiment, right? They they signed off on this knowing how little was written in stone about the second date and knowing that the blanks were going to need to be filled in and trusting that, you know, the showrunners and writers were going to do that in a respectful way. I trust the judgment of the Tolkien estate, you know, Tolkien's actual family, you know, that, that, that in most, in some cases still knew the man, like there's still some of his grandkids that are involved with the estate. Simon Tolkien, Christopher's oldest, was consulting on the show we found out not too long ago. And, you know, I, I trust the judgment of those people more than I do random fucking internet commenter number three. I also don't understand how random internet commenter number three 
if he has actually read all 200 pages of Tolkien's writings on the Second Age, wants to see a series that is based exclusively on those materials. Because it would be fucking unwatchable. Look, we all know that you hate Aldarion. Just get over <laughs> it. <laughs> Not just that. Honestly, I would watch that just for the fucking rage bait. But no, it's, it's just there's so much in there that is disconnected that has nothing to do with the primary thrust of the you know, rings of power and the downfall of Numenor and stuff like that that are just tangential. And there's so much in there that is that are unfinished notes that are contradictory within themselves. And I don't understand how anybody can say, hey, I want something that is totally true to the lore. And the quote-unquote lore of the Second Age contradicts itself every other page. And it's fragmentary and you know, incomplete. And I, I, w- I would like to see, yeah, I just want to see that. I want to see the potential of what, what was unwritten explored. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating to me, too, how so many of, of the folks who have such strong opinions in this regard are really willing to, to exclude the pieces of this fairly small amount of writing that they don't necessarily agree with, which doesn't leave all that much left. Unless, of course, by chance they haven't read the material and aren't aware of it. But I'm sure since they speak so definitively, they must, in fact, have done the reading. And not just looked it up on Wikipedia or Tolkien Gateway or something like that. Yeah, right. How dare you make such accusations? You know every single one of these dude bros has read every single word of Tolkien. Oh, exactly. I love it when the gatekeepers are the people that haven't even read the. Yeah, they haven't read I, shit. My favorite is the gatekeepers that like constantly misspell like characters' names, or the the worst is cannot even handle the proper spelling of Middle Earth, the hyphen and the lowercase b. If you can't get that right, and yet you're going to play Tolkien purist, like just fuck it off and have it. Yeah. Right. Now, this is that's something that Tim gets very petty over. It is. <laughs> it's a good... <laughs> when they start the pettiness, I don't feel at all bad yeah. about throwing yeah. it back in their faces. You want to be petty also, about this, except you can't fucking even spell the name properly. The name of my Tolkien, gosh, Tim's pettiness word. does mean <laughs> that I have not misspelled this at any point since <laughs> meeting Tim. <laughs> See, and I would give you a pass because I know that you're not petty about <laughs> It's just the people that are, like, overly petty about that. And it's honestly it's something... It's the hypocrisy and the pettiness yeah. that... It's, yeah. it's like, Bonding okay, yeah. go for it. Yeah. All right, do I dare go into this last point that's going to start a fight? <laughs> oh. Wait, let us all lace up our boxing gloves. How much did you even show up until the third age of You're not even in a second age. Okay, so this <laughs> is gonna in our house. Let's go. This Let's is correct. This. Hobbits, as far as we know, do not exist before the third age. And here are my fucking notes about this. The begin okay, from Lord of the Rings, page two, Fellowship of the Ring. The beginning of Hobbits lies far back in the elder days that are now lost and forgotten. Okay. That's kind of ambiguous. Also, if you were to go back to of dwarves and men from the history of Middle-earth, hobbits are specifically described as a type of men, 
you could make the assertion that hobbits have been around as long as men have based on those two things. Cool. Except I make that assertion. <laughs> also in in Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf is talking to Frodo about the origins of Gollum. And, and he's talking about something that happened after the events of Gladden Fields. So firmly third age. And says long after, but still very long ago. That's what's connecting it to when he's talking about Gladden Fields. And then he goes on to describe Gollum's people as a clever-handed and quiet-footed little people. I guess they were of hobbit kind akin to the fathers of the fathers of the Stores. And later, Gollum in the Two Towers, when they're in the Dead Marshes, is talking about the origins of the Dead Marshes and says that there was a great battle long ago, yes, so they told him when Smeagol was young. That says to me (laughs) that if Gollum is from a people who are akin to the fathers of the fathers of the stores, which are one of the kind of three houses of hobbits, and those people did not exist until after the third age, from what we can tell. Hobbits are third age. And I understand that it's an adaptation and they have to have hobbits because it's Middle Earth and people fucking (laughs) expect that. Fine. But it's not fucking canonical in my opinion. (laughs) And as much as I don't want to align myself with these fuckheads who say shit like this, <laughs> I I agree. <laughs> but see, here's the great thing, because Alicia and I can disagree on this and, and still want to like have a cup of coffee together. Um, Same. because Same. when I look when I look at like the elder days statement here, um now admittedly, this does seem weirdly out of place to me. The Elder Days typically in Tolkien's writing refers to the first age. And first and second age. So there's an argument. <laughs> there's an argument that they've been there all along and nobody's paying any attention to them. And that would seem like a little bit of a silly argument to me. But Elrond and I think Gandalf, pretty much all of the elves just paddle on themselves in this regard at multiple points in time throughout the story and are just like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, we, um, we didn't actually make note of them in our records, so hard to say. Hard to say. And that's one of their inherent characteristics of Hobbit, too, right? Is that they are good at going unseen. Is that they're light yep. of foot, they can hide. They, they, I, I'm with you guys on this one at the I, risk of alienating my life. <laughs> I, but yeah. Gollum is a fucking Hobbit! Gollum should know about like what happened when he was alive. Because he yeah, was a hobbit, and he was alive. Also, when you're yeah. talking about Elder Days, that's in the prologue to The Lord of the Rings, and that is, to put that completely into context, that's about finding the translation, right? Mm. So when they're talking about the Elder Days, they're talking about the entirety of the Red Book. There's nothing in what you've put forth that specifically says to me that Gollum and, like, a couple generations before him were the first of the hobbit or proto hobbit that they yeah. couldn't have existed long before him, but he was just, at some point, you know, it, it was still pre-Hobbit kind of thing, but that, you know, it, it, we don't know how long proto-Hobbits, be they Harfoots or Stewards or whatever, were around. It's yeah. the fathers of the fathers of the Stewards part that really 
says to me it's kind of towards the beginning. So you think, you think specifically that two that two generations before Spiegel popped the pro the sewers just fucking pop, like popped up out of the ground? Yeah, because I read Fathers of the Fathers as like a rhetorical, like, you know, a long once upon a time and long ago and far away. Like I read that as a generations in very multiples of uh because well, i think you can take it as a fairly literal generational argument especially like given how long Gollum ends up living and all of that and i think you yeah. can also take it as a very figurative argument of the almost like the peoples that came before the peoples that came and so yeah, it's like an age yeah argument but i yeah, think i read this as like ancestors like you know deep ancestors you know rather than like great-grandma or like great-great-grandma you know and of course Tolkien doesn't give us enough to go on here he gives us just enough knowledge to be dangerous um (laughs) so I think I I think honestly I also would have only expected to see hobbits in the third age because so few peoples of middle earth are aware of them but there is a textual explanation for that there's also some some evidence that makes me go okay i have to expand my assumptions past what i had previously thought so i think that this one is indeed a stretch <laughs> it is definitely a stretch that the the producers of the, the show are making here but i don't think it's a stretch that absolutely has to result in injury <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I agree. I'm actually I probably fall on the the other side of like you know I'm like oh yeah hobbits of course because I'm I kind of fall into like the in my my head canon I'm like yeah they've been around for ages in the same way that like all of these peoples in Middle Earth have been around for ages and ages and so I I definitely fall on the uh you know when it comes to hobbits I'm like they've been around here for a time immemorial so. I I'm I'm excited to see them here in in the second page for sure. And the one thing I'm I'm really happy about with how the hobbits are being depicted is where the, the proto hobbits are foot is that they are being depicted as nomadic. That is canonical. That Tolkien wrote that specifically. So that's, you know, these are nomadic characters. Yeah. They haven't around found the Shire. Place. Yeah, exactly. They have not settled down in the Shire yet. Which realistically, like how easy is it for another race to pin down the existence of hobbits or, or proto-hobbits, harfoots, when they're nomadic, right? When they're they're a race that is notable for their ability to walk around unseen and they never stay in one place. That's me a lot angrier if they're shown like crossing the Anduin and like cuddling in the Shire in episode two yeah. than I am about their yeah. existence in the be, in this age. That might, I think be, that, that might be something nice we didn't talk about during the, the book club, but, but I think you know if we thought that in like the last season kind of thing, I would be totally happy with seeing hobbits find the Shire and start. Absolutely the fuck not! That doesn't happen <laughs> until the fall of the goddamn North Kingdom. We're not going all the way to Farakel and fucking killing Arvidui. That's not something that's happening. That happens halfway through the goddamn Third Age. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Are you now going to fucking defend Movie Farm here? (laughs) (laughs) Look, some things are are you. (laughs) Well, apparently, yeah. Apparently, some things are. Some things are the Brandywine, but too far. (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh, that's just I there are very few hills that I'm willing to die on about this uh show and it's fucking the horrible wigs on the elves and the hobbits just existing. I I feel you. Stand in your truth. <laughs> Stand in your truth. Not my truth, but that's cool. Well, and there are plenty of things that I I have strong opinions on too about the way that something might be depicted that there are going to be plenty of things that I will be able to trace the through thread back to Tolkien's writings and see the genesis of that idea and think, I understand how the council came to that decision, but being as I think it's a stupid ass decision, <laughs> I'm not going to listen to. Yep. I have to. It'll be, it'll be the canon of the show, if not the canon of Tolkien. That's fine. Knowing where the idea comes from is really, really helpful to me, actually. But I certainly have strong preferences about how certain things may or may not be depicted. Um, buy me a coffee and we can talk for about it three hours about how I'd like to see Tar Muriel's storyline go. Uh, and that's before we even started the show. So, yeah, we all have pretty strong opinions. But I think yeah. it's really helpful to know what the grounding in the text is. And as Alicia points out, if you're ever trying to make the case that Tolkien definitively meant something that is your own worldview, it's a really hard case to make. Yeah. And I think that in a lot of this stuff, it's like it comes back, coming back full circle back to the beginning. We haven't seen this show yet. We don't know what choices have been made. We don't know what things are going to happen, how things are going to happen. And when they deviate from the text, like that's definitely a conversation we can have. And I think that's a conversation we're definitely going to have on future episodes of this podcast. But I could tell it just from the trailers, but it's just a fucking It's going to be super disrespectful oh to Tolkien. It's going to be terrible. I can just Tolkien's tell. going to be fucking rolling around in his grave, uh, guys. Oh my god. And I'm you like, can really just hear, like, one, how, like, excited Tim gets about fighting with people on the internet and also like how soul draining it is to me. <laughs> yeah. Just like, uh, God damn it. Just shut up. No one fucking cares. Fucking... You're one more angry white Catholic man. Like No one I, cares. I've heard your fucking opinion already. <laughs> oh, we've heard it like ten thousand times. I should get paid every time you say an opinion so that I can like, you know, afford health insurance. <laughs> Reparation. You're draining me of my health. You you owe me. <laughs> All right. Well, we are at over two hours now, so I'm really excited to hear, listen to this after uh, Tim edits it and figure out how much of this that we actually end up keeping. <laughs> I was to make reference to how long the episode's been going. It... <laughs> what a journey. <laughs> What a uh, journey future Tim's going to go on. Indeed. Yeah, so this was our not-quite-a-real episode, our .5 episode of uh, Queer Lodgings. You can find us on the interwebs. We're on Facebook as uh, Queer Lodgings and on Twitter as Queer underscore Lodgings. And if you have an episode idea or whatever, you can email us at queerlodgingspodcast at gmail.com. See you guys next time. <laughs>
where we're going to be angrily talking about something different. <laughs> angrily or maybe not. <laughs> Tune in to find out. Because we want to leave folks with an air of mystery. Indeed. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to be surprised. <laughs>